Hey guys, and welcome to the Abundance Alchemist podcast. I'm Caitlin Dorsey, an Abundance Alchemist, animal lover, trauma survivor to thriver, mindset expert, self-love junkie, and author. This is the place to be to grab those powerful tools, ideas, and inspiration to make lasting changes in yourself and your life. No more waiting, my friends, because it's time to show up unapologetically, radiate that confidence, and create a life you absolutely love. Time to buckle up and dive on in. Hello, my high-vibing friends. Welcome to the Abundance Alchemist podcast. I'm so excited that you're here, and I'm beyond excited to introduce to you guys Liesl Hayes. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about her. She is a word artist, truth teller, choice maker, and inspirer. For over a decade, Liesl has been facilitating trainings, mentoring others, and creating development experiences that require people to dig deep. She is an entrepreneur, in-owner, and human resources consultant. Liesl runs on coffee just like me, um, to-do list and the belief that life begins after you agree to write your own story. She lives in Lee Summit, Missouri with her husband, Harlan, her kids, Maddie and Ethan and their dogs, Lily and Bear. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Caitlin. I appreciate you having me, but I have to start off by asking you, what is your favorite coffee? Oh, right now in this moment. Okay. Well, I'm not gonna lie. Like I just went to Starbucks (laughs) and I got there, um, I'm really either about like the brown sugar espresso, like shaken espresso, or I'm really like a sucker for um, cold brew with just like some half and half or even like vanilla sweet cream. It's just warms me up. How about you? Yeah. So right now I am loving cold brew. So I switch over when it gets really warm and I love cold brew with just a shot of caramel in it, like the Mm. caramel syrup. It's so good. That sounds so good. I, we've got like this whole little coffee bar. Cause that's like you said, like I run on coffee too. I love my coffee. It's like the one thing in life I will never give up. Um, so we've got this little coffee bar in our kitchen. Um, and we've got, you know, like all the flavors and the syrups and all the different stuff. So it's always so much fun to, but you know, every once in a while, I feel like you just can't get it quite like Starbucks. I know people have mixed feelings about Starbucks, but I love it. (laughs) I agree though. Like you can't get it just like your coffee shop does it. And there's also something about the experience of the coffee shop. Mm -hmm. And I think many of us, especially over this last year, we haven't had like the full coffee shop experience. So I think there's something to be said about getting coffee out and Mm -hmm. not having to make it yourself. It's beautiful. It is. Absolutely. Well, perfect. Um, so I want, I have so many questions for you, um, but I know that, you know, your kind of um, truth or like what you talk about in your book, especially is that you don't, or your life will begin once you agree to write your own story. So I really want to chat about that and just kind of, if you're willing to share kind of some of your story and how that um, shaped how you are today, I would love to start there. Yeah, that would be great. So actually, let's start with what I really believe to be true. Okay. So I believe that life begins after you agree to write your own story. Mm -hmm. And I think that many of us walk around living stories that were created for us and not necessarily by us. And then we kind of wonder why we walk around feeling just like half alive, right? Mm -hmm. Because we feel like we have ownership over these stories, But in reality, there are some stories or roles or things we've taken on in our life that actually weren't authentic to who we are. So I think that many of us 
can walk around living that way. I mean, we all have small stories maybe that we don't live and are not authentic to us. But when the majority of the stories that we're living are not in alignment with who we want to be, I think we really get to a place of crisis. And about five years ago, I actually really had taken on a life that I didn't recognize as my own. Mm -hmm. And that very much started in small choices that didn't seem like large decisions at the time, but they were small betrayals of who I was as a person to eventually get to a place where I didn't even really know who I was and didn't even recognize who I was. Mm -hmm. And that was when I really got to a place where I was personally in crisis because I had lived that way for so long. Mm -hmm. I definitely resonate with that. I, as you're talking, I'm like thinking about a time in my life that I kind of hit rock bottom and everything just kind of shattered. And I had to figure out how to like build up and what direction I wanted to go. But like you said, I got to this place of where I was like, who is that? Because that's not me, right? Like I was moving through life, like not like feeling like I was present. I was just like kind of moving through and, um, you know, like education is really important to me. That became not very important to me. Um, I had a horse at the time and he was like the love of my life. And I started like doing other things rather than going to the barn. And it was just like, you start to notice. And like you said, I love that you said, it's all these little choices. It's not like we make these grand choices that are like, oh, this is a new direction of my life. It's kind of all these little things that add up and um, they do bring us into that place of crisis. And we do kind of, as I've thought about this and I've chatted with clients about this, we choose these stories, like to believe these stories that other people have told us are true about ourselves. Like even your parents, you know, like um, I like, I always think of like the idea of a religion, right? Like when I was growing up, it was kind of like, you're Catholic or you're Christian. And it wasn't like a question. It was just because your parents are that and you're a child. So you're expected to believe that. And then people don't question anything like moving forward. It's just kind of like what we do, what we bring as part of our life. And that's not right or wrong. It's just, there is a place where we should question what belongs to us and what feels like it's an alignment. Like you said, beautifully. And Caitlin, what I love about what you just said as well is that ultimately all of us are meant to live different stories Mm -hmm. and something that is authentic to one person obviously isn't going to be authentic to another person. And I think when we try and like fit everyone inside like a box and say, okay, this is, this is how life works. You graduate high school, you go to a good college, you get married, you have children. Like those things do bring people joy. Don't get me wrong but they don't bring everybody joy. And Mm -hmm. I think it's really, really important that we ask ourselves, you know, am I having children because that's what I'm supposed to do? Or do I really want to bring a child into the world and parent them? Like, Mm -hmm. do I want to marry my partner or like, do I want to be in a long-term relationship with that person? And I think it's so important for us to just, understand that we all get joy out of different things in our lives and we have to figure out what those things are and and make sure that they're true to you know where we where we want to go and where we feel most aligned so yeah absolutely I definitely think that's true we don't um 
and as you're saying that, like you go to high school, you go to college, you get married, you have, that was literally like in my life, which I think is for many people, that was what my parents told me. The only difference that mine was like, you go to college, you get a career. And then, and then there was kind of like this, always this contradicting idea in my family. Um, my parents were always like, my mom especially was always like, you don't work for anybody else. You're self-employed. Like that's always the goal. And then my dad was, you know, successful and um, working like a career and, and had a boss and was kind of, you know, did that whole thing. So he never really shaped that, but it was always like, you get yourself, your career, you get situated before you meet a partner and go into that space. And I remember like, I didn't do that specifically, like in my life plan, um, I went to college, I met uh, my current husband in college, we got married, I started my career. Like, I mean, we didn't get married until after I kind of started my career, but I'm still like in this development of like, moving through my career, I'm currently in my master. So, you know, I'm like, still in this weird space. And I remember like, this, this emotion of like, oh my gosh, I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do came up. And that was a weird emotion and, and really impactful. And I had to dig through that and go like really deep into this idea of why am I like shaming myself almost for having a different storyline that fits me perfectly. Like getting married to my husband didn't change the fact that I'm still moving towards my career. Like, you know, you're still moving towards things that are important, but the shame and the, just like I'm doing something wrong was really, really powerful for me during that time. And I think that when we break outside of some of those expected molds, Mm -hmm. we do sometimes get the looks, right? It's the, oh, you left your safe corporate job to open an inn? Yeah. How's that going? (laughs) You know, I mean, it's it's hard when we don't fit that standard mold because Mm -hmm. people just, that's how they react. They aren't sure how to react is what I meant. Right. And I, I think too, like this behavior, um, where we do feel like a lot of that shame when we go out of the like societal molds that have kind of become the norms is because we're in this like people pleasing behavior. Um, and I think that so many of us fall into it because it's so easy, but we don't think about like that we're in a people pleasing behavior and we're not doing things. Like you said, it's again, that kind of like that little decision where we're not showing up as like, this is what I want to do. We're showing up of like, oh, I want people to approve. And I know that that's like a basic, like psychological need of a human. Like we want to be accepted. We want to be like, we are like a collaborative species in general, but, um, yeah, we fall into like these, what do other people want me to do? Totally. And I actually think that when I went through crisis, the role that I played in everybody's life was being everything to everyone. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be the martyr. I wanted to be the person who saved you. I wanted to be the person who was there for you whenever you needed me. Call me at any time of the day. I will be there. And while I do think that my intentions were good in those things Mm -hmm. that became my identity. And I started to be wrapped up in only helping and supporting other people. And in reality, that helping and supporting wasn't always good for them either. Right. Because I was the person who always told them what they wanted to hear versus what they needed to hear. 
-hmm. And in many ways, I followed that people pleasing more of an enabler path versus a true friend and confidant and someone who's going to tell you the hard truths. I just wanted everybody to like me. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I kind of noticed it and like, during that time of crisis for me, um, I kind of noticed, um, that like I was almost like playing two separate roles. Cause I like that you hit on that piece of identity. I noticed that like I was volunteering at the time, like that was kind of, um, cause my crisis was more around like high school to college time. Um, and I was like volunteering after school and, you know, like kind of taking that like people please enabler sense in that space. Um, just because, especially when you're working in like, you know, um, I was working like a domestic violence shelter and, um, you're kind of like in this place where you don't fully understand. So you're just trying to like help as much as you can. Right. And then in my personal life, I was like shut off and like closed off to everyone, but, um, like my abusive boyfriend at the time. Um, but I was like kind of playing these two opposite identities of like, I'm going to people please like crazy over here. But then I also noticed that it drained me. So then I felt like when I was in my personal life, I couldn't show up and I'm, and now it's, it makes so much sense. Like I'm such a strong believer that if you can't, if you aren't not filling your own cup, you can't fill somebody else's. Right. And like you said, you weren't giving that person like exactly what they need. And I think that's something we don't think a lot about when we think about people pleasing or like having people like us. We just think like, oh, well, that's like good or that's what I'm supposed to do or that's what feels right. But we are not thinking that like you're not doing that person any favor by not actually coming forward and like standing in your power and sharing the truth or sharing what they need to hear. And that's that's what actually is like helpful to people. People pleasing behavior is harmful to people and really can be, I mean, not all the time, but it can be really hard. So I like, I like that you hit on that. Totally. And I think, you know, how it kind of played out for me, especially work is a really good example for me of people pleasing and, you know, telling people what they wanted to hear versus what they needed to hear. So I was the person that always worked with all of the difficult people at work. Mm -hmm. Literally, they'd be like, just send Liesl in. Like, they'll like Liesl. Everybody likes Liesl. She's so sweet. Everyone loves her. And I literally was the person who always made excuses for the bad behavior of all of the like slightly, the, the individuals I was surrounded by that exhibited a lot of toxic behavior. Mm-hmm. And I made excuses for those people with the caveat of, well, nobody's perfect. This is just how they operate. You just have to learn to work around it. And I was always the one who was enabling bad behavior from my managers and executives and, and people that had difficult personalities, mm-hmm. but really were engaged in a lot of toxic behaviors at the time. So I was there enabler. And I was the person that convinced the world that they weren't that bad. That was my role. That resonates a lot. Um, not like personally, like my family has always said, I'm, I'm not, um, I don't sugarcoat things. I'm very direct. However, it's different when you're at work, right? We all know that we have to deal with people that are difficult or all these different things. And, um, 
it made me think what you said made me think about this idea um, of gossip because sometimes like we just push these people onto, you know, somebody else, but then the gossip happens about the other behavior. And one thing that I learned about gossip that I thought was really interesting is that when somebody gossips about somebody else and their bad behavior, the person that you're gossiping to they're, they subconsciously put that bad behavior and pattern that you're talking about onto you. So then it's like in their subconscious, they make this idea that you're actually the one doing these bad behaviors. So it's, and it, it makes sense with like, we were saying kind of like you're surrounding yourself by these toxic people because they're being pushed towards you. And then, you know, gossip is kind of a natural thing that happens in society. I would say, even though, you know, there is a taboo subject and it's not great, but let's be real and honest. It happens. And so I think, (laughs) I think that's a really important piece to look at of like, when you're around these people and you're engaging in these people, pleasing behaviors, and you're talking about all these different things, people are actually attaching that stuff to you. So it changes how people actually think about you, which again is a new identity for you to take on, which is not your story. (laughs) Definitely, definitely not healthy in mm-hmm. in the grand scheme of things, right? Right, absolutely. So with this idea of going through kind of um, dealing with people and crisis that we're kind of talking about and this idea of like really claiming your story, how do you even start to do this? How do you start to like reclaim your life after a difficult time? So one of the things that's really important, and I talk a lot about this in the book, but the first thing that is really important when you're going through a difficult time and you're in crisis, and when I mean in crisis, this is a self-imposed crisis. I always think it's really important to differentiate that from a crisis that happens to you. This is one that you've created for yourself when I'm talking about crisis. So Owning your story was one of the most critical elements for me to really accept after I had gone through a really difficult time. So the first thing for me is you have to get honest with yourself. And for many of us who find ourselves in the middle of crisis, one of the reasons that we end up getting there is because we haven't been honest about our story And we haven't been honest with ourselves. So not just others, but also ourselves. So when I started to own my story, I had to start with myself. Hmm. I had to start understanding the things that had happened, the things that I was trying to hide and bury. And I had to do a lot of internal work on what my story was and how I was going to move through it. So I think what many of us do in our lives, and I know I wanted to do this in crisis, instead of actually doing the work, we just want to like offload the undesirable story. Mm -hmm. And I think I had been doing that my whole life. But this time, the universe like really upped the ante for me. And I'm very honest about this in my book, but I had an affair Mm -hmm. and I had to make a decision. Was I going to just get rid of this story and pretend that it never happened? 
or was I going to do the work to figure out why the hell I ended up over here? Why was I in crisis? Mm-hmm. And what I will tell you what I wanted to do and what I think many of us want to do in crisis, Caitlin, is we want to just forget it happened. We just mm-hmm. want it to, to be erased. We want to find a new story. We want to do something different. What we don't realize is that oftentimes when we go in search of another story over here, we're going to relive out the same pattern that we lived inside the story that led us into crisis if we don't deal with our stuff. 100%. Yeah. And I think my biggest piece of advice is to own your story. That's the place that you need to start to really begin to unwind all of your healing. That's really critical for you to be able to get out of the mess that you're in. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And I do want to, I want to ask you how, because you said doing the internal work, but I think there's such a big difference between what people think owning your story is of like telling all the dirty details to everybody in your life versus really understanding it on your own. Cause I, and I did this personally, like growing up, like I said, because my story, um, included like sexual assault. And one of the things with sexual assault that, you know, therapists see a lot is people like are trying to figure out how to like take back control of their own body. But part of that can be, you know, it can look very different for different people, but part of it can be like telling everybody your story or doing these different things. And for me, I had to get to that place of where I realized telling my story and sharing that gets sympathy, which is not what helps me understand my story. Because when you are eliciting a reaction from somewhere else, someone else, their reaction becomes part of your storyline, which again, as Lisa was saying, like, that's not your story to own. Somebody else's reaction can change what your story means to you. Because I remember, um, this, like I had a in therapy, I was telling my therapist and then it happened and she had a very extreme reaction and she classified something that happened to me and put like a, a name that was harmful on what happened to me. And to me, I like panicked. I was like, Oh my God, this happened to me. What in the world? And it wasn't to me, that was not how I had originally seen it. And I understand like it wasn't coming from a harmful place of her, but again, like I had new like trauma now that I had to work through because of someone else's reaction rather than going internal and saying, what are my feelings about this? And what does this story mean to me? So how do you own your story and start like that internal process, I guess? So Caitlin, I just want to resonate with what you said and just first, thank you for being brave and sharing your story because when we share our stories, it gives other people the permission to share theirs and get the healing that they need. Mm -hmm. I do think that there are some stories that we are meant to share out loud. And there are other ones that we're meant to process with close people that we love. But I think ultimately it starts with yourself Mm -hmm. and very much what you said, the healing in difficult stories has to begin by doing internal work. And when I say doing internal work, it looks differently for everyone. But one of the things that really helped me, well, one, I'm a writer. Mm -hmm. So an outlet for me in expressing my feelings, my thoughts, my beliefs, where I am at a certain point in time starts by writing. Mm -hmm. 
and how I started to accept the truth of my story because the truth was even buried for me because I had been lying for so long to myself and my family and the people that I loved. Mm -hmm. It started by writing out my story Mm. and I would write and I would go back to some very difficult moments for me in my life. And I would revisit those moments and it helped me be able to own the truth of my story, understand how it played out. And then also, you know, revisit a place that I needed to, not to to dwell in that pain, but to be able to pick the lessons that were important for me to be able to learn to move on. And so I started with writing. I know that one of the other things that a lot of people do, and I love this, my um, partner's this way. So he actually listens to songs Mm -hmm. that he can spot his feelings in. So he's not a natural writer. Um, He doesn't get energy from writing. So he actually spots his feelings in stories or characters or songs. And I know that that helps him kind of process his story by giving it words that other people are, are more able to give than he is. So I think we all have to figure out what are our creative outlets that we can personally start to process our own individual stories. Because like you said, Caitlin, that's foundational. That healing is foundational to be able to share it out loud. Mm-hmm. Because if I have accepted my story It's like, for me, I have accepted the fact that I had an affair Mm -hmm. and I have gone through a significant amount of personal and internal work to make it possible for me to share it with the masses because I feel called in my life to help other people. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what people that I do not know and care about think about that story. Mm -hmm. And that has to be a place um, that you can harness your energy from and know that your story does not define you. I am not saying that everybody is meant to share their, their most difficult things out loud though, either. Right. So I just personally feel called to that. And some people never do. And I think that's just as brave. And we all have to process our own healing in the way that is authentic to us. I love that. Yeah. I want to kind of resonate with that too, is my, you know, story and, and crises that have happened in my life, as I, you know, have mentioned briefly throughout the podcast in this episode a little bit, I did not come on the next day and start a podcast and start sharing my story. I did not show up and talk about this stuff until doing years of internal work, just like Lisa said, where I'm owning my story and I am not affected by what other people say or feel about my story because I've gotten to that place of where I own my story, but I also realize that my story does not define me. What happened to me does not define me. I choose, like, I always look at, like, your story is your choice. And Lisa kind of touched on that. It's your choice to how you move forward with that. It is just as brave if you don't want to share that story, but you're still doing the internal work. Awesome. That's amazing. If you are called to share it, like Lisa and I are doing, awesome. That's amazing. It's It's not about like, you have to tell everybody, like Lisa said, what's going on. And the other piece of this too, is Lisa said um, in the healing process, like giving it words. And that is so incredibly powerful. Um, 
I think so often we're so afraid to like, I'm a talker. So like one way that I processed my life, if you can't tell I'm a talker, um, I'm a talker too, which is why <laughs> we're, we gel. Right. We both, yes, yes. Perfect. I was not ready to share my story with people. And so I told, like I mentioned, my horse river was like my life. He was my safe space. So I went to the barn and I sat in his stall and I talked to him. And I shared what was going on with me. And that still helped me like get that, you know, emotion out. Like it doesn't have to be you sitting in a, um, you know, traditional therapy session and talking to a therapist. It doesn't have to be sitting in, you know, and talking to a coach or on the yoga mat or wherever it looks like whatever works for you is a perfect way for you to process it. But giving it words is really scary. And I think we think that when we give what happened or what our crisis is words, we give it power. But the difference is it doesn't give the situation power. It gives us power to choose how we move forward with it, right? It's not me saying what happened to me does not give the situation power over me. Again, it's a choice that empowered me to move forward and how I want to decide how my past and how my stories that I've lived get to affect my future. And, you know, people will say, oh, like, that's so um, brave of you to share. Wow. Like, I'm so sorry for the stuff that happened to you. And to me, I'm like, I don't, I'm not sorry that it happened. I, this is my story and I've made that decision for it to empower me to move forward. So I think that's a big thing too, because sometimes we get um, really nervous to process this stuff and we get really stressed out that if we're sitting in our trauma and we're sitting in the crisis that we have to relive it. And I always like to tell like my clients that you don't have to relive your trauma. Absolutely not. Processing and the, how the body works and getting that emotion out is all that has to happen. And whatever way that looks like of, you know, Lisa said her husband is using songs. She writes. Um, I talked to my horse. I also like cried and danced and laughed hysterically at different things, like all these different ways Emotion in the human body does not have to be processed out in the same emotion that it came in. So just keeping that in mind is, is, was helpful to me because I was nervous. I held that trauma for years because I was nervous to relive it and to have to deal with like the reality that something like that happened. And and to me too, you know, we get into this place of like, and I'm just going on like a rampage, Lisa, but you can jump in any time. Oh, I know. I love it. <laughs> I was going to say, um, we get into this place too, where we go into like this like victim place of where like I was nervous because I was like, I had to acknowledge that I was a victim and I don't like to think of it that way. But then I got to redefine this idea that to me, what partially of what empowered me in my own situation was realizing that I played a part in it too. And that's not to say like that things don't happen to people or there's not, I mean, it's each person's story is completely different. What helped me is realizing that, Hey, I put myself in a bad situation and therefore this occurred that empowered me because then I knew I do not put myself in those situations. And so I was able to give, again, my story new meaning rather than thinking that I was, I don't deal well with the idea of thinking that I'm helpless. I like to be an active participant in my life. I don't believe in that for me personally. Um, again, how people process is, is their choice and completely their own story. Um, but that empowered me. So um, yeah, I don't know where I was going with that, but that's that's where no, we're at. No, <laughs> I, I think that it's really important though, because- mm-hmm. 
one of the steps for me that was most critical for healing was to get out of the place where I was blaming everyone else for what happened. Mm -hmm. Now, were there contributing factors? Were there players that supported me in some of my bad decisions? A hundred percent, but I don't have control over those people. I do not. And one of the things that was really empowering for me was just to say, what do I have control over Mm -hmm. and how moving forward can I play a different role and be able to take control because that's all I have. That is really all I have. Very similar to what you're saying. Um, At the end of the day, if you give someone so much power in your life that them changing is, is integral to your happiness or your healing, you have already given them too much power. Mm -hmm. You have. And I know that's hard and I don't, I do not want, as I say that out loud, please know that I know many people have been through extremely traumatic things, difficult things. And I am not saying in any way that those grievances are not felt, that they are not something that you have to work through. But at the end of the day, just make sure that as you work through those things, those difficult, hard things, that you don't allow your healing to be contingent on the apology that you never got Mm -hmm. or have it be contingent on someone else's changed behavior because you deserve better than that. You you deserve to take control over your healing and and no one else can take that from you. Mm Mm-hmm. That makes me think of, um, it's a Buddhist quote, but it's the idea, because like you said, you know, we can't control other people. And by my trauma story, I'm not condoning someone else's bad behavior. Is sexual assault ever appropriate? No. However, I can't do anything about that person, right? I can do something about how I move forward. So it makes me think of the the Buddhist quote, and it says that um, keeping that anger inside you is like drinking poison and expecting it to affect the other person. And it doesn't. So true. Right? They have to do their own work if they want to change. And they also, as we're talking about our own stories, they have to realize their own story, right? And that's not our journey to do. That's our journey is only what we can do in our choosing. So um, what, you know, I like Liesl and I have said multiple times that this, we're not condoning something that somebody did that was wrong to you. However, you have to, it happened. Like you have to deal with it. You have to move forward in your life. And the most amazing piece of this is I always think that something comes out of what happens. I personally believe everything happens for a reason. I know that quote bugs people, but (laughs) I think it does. I believe it too. (laughs) Um, I actually have it tattooed on my ribs and it's like, anytime people see it, they're like, really? And I'm like, I, that quote to me, helps in life because I may not know the reason and stuff is going to feel very difficult and hard, but I choose to believe that there's a reason. And I choose to believe that there's a lesson in everything that happens. And again, the lesson is not like condoning the behavior. The lesson is what do I take out of this? Like I said, for me, the stuff that happened to me helped me realize I needed to do personal work. I needed to take responsibility for my life and I got to choose how I move forward. That's a beautiful lesson to come out of something that was so terrible to go through. And that's why when people say again, like, Oh, I'm so sorry you went through that. I'm like, I'm not, 
because although it was really hard and not fair and, but life's not fair, it it helped me become who I am today. And I like who I am today. So I'm not going to change anything that happened. Right. Yeah. No, I get it. And I, people ask me this question too, all the time. They'll say, well, did you wish that you didn't have the affair? Hmm. And I'm like, okay. So at the end of the day, the person that is standing in front of you, the reason why I am who I am is because of the choices that I made in my life. Yeah. Do I regret the decision that I made at the time? Of course. Like I, mm-hmm. I feel remorseful for what I did. Sure. However, I wouldn't go back and change it because mm-hmm. I wouldn't be this person standing here in front of you now sharing this story. And I do think that there's purpose in me sharing my story out loud, because I do think it will usher in healing for other people. So it's, it's difficult when we've gone through hard things, Mm -hmm. but I also think there is beauty in hard things. And we often fail to focus on the beauty that comes through trial. Absolutely. I love that. I think you hit on, you know, something really powerful of when I was saying earlier, you don't have to relive your trauma it's also this idea of the past, present, and future. And I think, you know, as I go through my master's and I'm going in clinical mental health counseling, obviously counseling can focus a lot on the past, but there are new, newer, you know, theories and different things that look more at like the present and future. And so I was actually doing a a paper the other day and it was talking about like what my clinical orientation would be. And it, asked how much we feel like needs to happen in the past, present, and future, like where the work of the counselor lies with the client. And my belief is that the past is is important to look at because yes, it affects who we are, what we do. Like Lisa was saying, we can see that behaviors, you know, that we didn't, uh, we wouldn't make now, or we feel like we're wrong or all these different things, but always hindsight's always 2020. Um, However, you can't do anything about that. The future is the same way. We look at, we are so in the the past and the future in our lives and we forget to hang out in the present and the future, we're too much in the future. That's when you're going to notice that anxiety because we're future tripping, right? We get too much in this place. But I always like to remind people that the present moment literally only lasts for that. Like every single second that we're talking, we are in the present and then we're we're in the future already. Like what we do in the present moment creates the past and the future. It's the only thing that we have the ability to deal with. So instead of hanging out in the past and beating ourselves up about what we should have done or shouldn't have done and asking about like, you know, I've had that, like I said, that question about like, oh, do you wish that stuff didn't happen? And instead of hanging out in that, I'm like, why do I even care about that? Like, I already know what happened there. So now my choice is the the future and the, and the present. But it's really important to think about that instead of we all make mistakes. Nobody is perfect. Our story is going to have hard times because guess what? We're humans and we're here to enjoy the crappy times and the amazing times. But what matters is what you do now. And I think that's really what, you know, Lisa is harping on is this idea of creating your own story or owning your own story and then creating your story, right? That is what matters. And that incorporates the past, 
but the focus is not the past. So when you're looking at your story and owning your stuff, do the work and then move on and decide because we get stuck in this doing the work piece and we get stuck and relieving like, I can't tell you how many times I went to new therapists over my life and they were like, all right, what's your story? And I would sit there and I would tell my trauma story. And that's when I started, that became my story, right? It became like, literally like, this is terrible. But when I went on the first date with my husband, or I think it was like our fifth date, I was still doing a lot of my healing work. And I was like, this is my trauma story. And just like, alerted it all out. And I was like, this is who I am. If you can't deal with it, we can't be together. And now that I look back at it, I'm like, yeah, probably not the best choice. However, I dealt with my stuff. He stuck it out. We have a healthy relationship because of this. But at the same time, I'd let that trauma story and let my past define who I was at that time. And now I let go of the focus of this is what happened and the details and all of this stuff because I did the work. And I move forward into, okay, great. That is part of my story, part of my story. That is not my story. It's not my entire story. I get to decide what my story becomes. Absolutely. And if we allowed ourselves the grace to be able to say this one moment in time does not define me. Yeah. It does not define my entire story. It would set so many people free. Mm -hmm. It would. It would. And I always remind people, have you ever read a book or went to a movie where someone just had a happy, great life, Mm -hmm. wonderful all the time. They woke up. Shit was amazing. No. No. Because those stories don't actually exist and they're not compelling. Mm-hmm. So don't try and live a life that's happy and roses and amazingness all the time. When in reality, what really creates beauty in people in general is challenges mm-hmm. and facing adversity. Those are those are what create and mold us into the next version of who we're meant to be. Yeah. It's not the happy times, not to say that those aren't great too, because I like living those as well, but mm-hmm. there's, there's the full balance and the full spectrum. And if we can understand that life is meant to be lived and experienced happy, sad, joy, relation, whatever it is, you're meant to feel all those things and experience a great life through all the things. Yeah. I couldn't have said it better. I like the reminder that if you don't have those low times, there's not going to be any meaning to the high times because you're not going to have anything to look at it and base it off of. So your crises are also what helps you have those amazing fun and times that you're grateful for. It's a balance, like you just said. I do want to ask you, I know we're um, getting close to where we need to wrap up, but I do want to ask you, um, also, what is the title of your book? Just so everybody knows. It's called Broken, Changed, and Rearranged. Perfect. I love it. I'm definitely going to check it out. It sounds amazing. Um, And I love talking to you, so I know you have so much amazing stuff to offer. So in your book, though, you have a chapter called Funeral Goals. What is a funeral goal? 
And how does having crises help identify what our funeral goals? So I'm going to give you quick context around funeral goals and this story. I'm going to try and do it as briefly as possible. (laughs) So I was at my grandfather's funeral three years ago. And I remember sitting in the church and every single pew in that whole church was full. There was a receiving line that was literally out the door of people who just wanted to see my family and, and tell their stories about my grandfather. Mm-hmm. And as I started to collect stories at the funeral, I started to realize that one of the things that my grandfather did so well, I call, we called him Papa. Mm-hmm. He always made people feel that when they were with him, they were the most important person in the world. Like he just had the ability to give his attention fully to people and the stories that people talked about at the funeral, just like they were all about him being present and giving his full attention. Mm -hmm. And in that moment, I started to go down like the typical self-development. What do I want people to say about me at my funeral? Right. Yeah. But I changed it up just a little bit. One of the reasons why I think this concept of what do people want or what do I want people to say about me at my funeral doesn't work is because that's always a really far away nebulous thing, Mm -hmm. right? It's I'm going to be 75. I'm in my 40s now. So I have like a really long time. If we would plan our funeral goals and what we want people to say about us at our funeral five years out, it would have a greater impact on our lives. And so when I think about what I want people to say about me at my funeral and how I'm aligning my priorities to those things, I pretend that I'm going to die in five years. And I know that that sounds a little morbid when I say it out loud, but at the end of the day, we don't know when it's going to be our time. We don't. Mm -hmm. We just don't know the hour that it's going to come. And so if we plan to align our lives to those things that really matter in the now, like you said, in the present moment, eventually in that future moment, the series of actions that we lived in the present will get us to that end goal. I love that. Yeah, it's, I think it, it's a hard concept for us to grasp, but I really like your, your take on it with the five years. Um, that same as the paper that I was talking about earlier, one of the questions was, what do you want people to say at your funeral? And it was all about, you know, self-evaluation and, and all this stuff. And um, I took a similar approach to it because I was like, you don't know when it's going to come. And I think a lot of us fear that, but when we look at okay, if my funeral is in five years or a year or, you know, two years or whatever it is, what am I doing now? And how do I want people to remember me? Like, what is the legacy that I'm leaving behind? Um, and I love that, you, that, you know, that your grandpa made me think of mine. I um, just actually last month lost my grandpa on my dad's side and my grandma on my mom's side. And it was very quick. And um, one was a kind of expected, um, you know, she had health issues for a while. My, my other grandpa, he bumped his head and within the day he was gone. And so it made me think kind of of that idea of similar to of like, 
what are their legacies? And it was very similar to kind of what you mentioned about your, your grandpa's funeral of like the stories that people could share and like, you know, the small things of like their, their smiles or like how helpful they were and how amazing they were. And it's like, what a precious gift of like, you can see that the stuff that we often think that really matters is not what matters. Your body weight, nobody gives a shit about. Like, pardon my language, but like, no nobody at your funeral, yeah, nobody at your funeral is going to be like, like oh. no one talks about that. Like, right. <laughs> exactly. Like, they're not going to be like, oh, she was a size two. Um, they're going to be like, you know, she, like you said, your grandpa, like, he made me feel like the most important person in the world. Or like my grandma, it was like her laugh could light up a room. Or, you know, my grandpa, like, he was, he was my biggest fan. He literally would call me. Um, we would talk like every week and he would just like love to hear about life and was always like willing to help and, and just sit there. And it's like, those are the moments that we remember. So looking at, you know, your funeral goals. Um, I love that. That is something that you're kind of challenging people to do in your book and looking at like what actually matters when you get to that place, because we're talking all about story what actually matters in your story and what do you want your, you know, present and future part of your story to look like? Because that's what people are going to remember. That's what you're going to leave behind. All the, you know, weight and house and cars and money, none of it matters. Yes, you're none of it matters. Family comfortable, but people care about, you know, like what you actually, how you actually impacted their lives. Um, and I think that's a beautiful piece about getting to own your own story and realize that again, like that choice of you can be like frustrated and upset about your story, but you'll move through life like that. And that's what people will remember, or you can choose yeah, to create your own and do the work and process it and enjoy your life and show up and light up the room when you smile or laugh or make people feel like they're the most important thing in the world. I absolutely love that. I just thought, you know, like the funeral goals piece really hit me when I, when I read that. Um, so thank you for sharing that. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. One super quick story. Cause yes. I know we're getting close to time. No, you're good. <laughs> so one of my favorite authors, Donald Miller, mm-hmm. he talks about, I think it was in blue, like jazz. I'm not sure. It was something that I read in college, but I will <laughs> never forget it. So he talks about, have you ever like gone to a movie where a man goes and buys an amazing BMW that's fully loaded and drives it off the lot? <laughs> and like, it's the end of such a great story and you're totally moved and the answer is no, right? None of us would want to go to a movie where someone goes and purchases a really nice BMW and drives off the lot. Now, there's nothing wrong with owning a BMW. I mean, there's nothing wrong with having a luxury car. However, I think sometimes we think that these things are actually going to bring us joy and are going to bring meaning to our life. And they aren't actually meaningful stories. Right. So when we tether ourselves to these goals of, you know, I'm going to own a BMW one day, again, nothing wrong with a luxury car. I would like to own one eventually too, but I also, that's not like a make or break it thing, right? Mm -hmm. It's a, well, that would be nice to have at some point, but when we think that material things are going to fill the place of joy and 
true community and belonging and all the things, Mm -hmm. it's not a reality, right? Those things do not actually help us live meaningful lives Mm -hmm. at all. Yeah. I think that brings it completely full circle to kind of where we started with the idea of these kind of societal norms of like, you get married, you go to school. It's like this idea of societal success. Like you buy a big house and you buy a nice cars and you have a great career and it's a career. And it's like, okay, but why? Like, what does that, does that fit? Does that like, what's the feeling? What's the emotion? What do you want? And you know, like, yeah, it brings it so full circle of really like, what is, what's the point, right? Again, think about it in terms of your funeral goal. Somebody going to say, wow, she had a really nice BMW. No, nobody gives a shit about that. (laughs) No one gives a shit about your BMW. They don't. And same thing around, you know, body type and image that I think many of us struggle with. Mm -hmm. In reality, no one says at your funeral, like you said, gosh, she weighed 120 pounds and was like in really good shape. Right. It's just, it's not a thing that people talk about. And yet we, so many of us, get wrapped up inside these stories where we think, oh, if I'm a certain weight or I buy this car or I buy this house, then my life is going to be meaningful. Mm -hmm. But in reality, a lot of times we meet all those goals and then we're like, oh shit, I'm still walking around half alive. Yeah. And why is that? Right. And if it brings you, like you said, you're not like channeling your deep inner voice and figuring out what truly brings you joy. Right. Yeah, that's what I was just going to say. If if those things are bringing you actual joy, fantastic. But make sure you know the motive behind it. And I do want to say, like, you kind of, you hit on this piece and it made me think of of my other grandpa. Um, So uh, my other grandpa was a very successful man, um, took care of, you know, his wife and, um, and kids and was just like very well off financially when we look at societal view. Every single day. He wore a white t-shirt and cotton pants, cotton shorts from Walmart every single day. And I mean, that man, he could have afforded very nice things, but he chose a different approach. So, I mean, it just made me think of like, we're saying like that made him happy. And I remember like my grandma used to be like, Will, why are you wearing that stuff? Or like my mom would be like, you can like, why don't you buy a nice pair of jeans or something? And my grandpa was like, because I'm comfortable. And that was his thing, right? He got joy out of just being comfortable. He didn't care about the financial stuff. And and it's easier said than done, right? Because we've learned these stories. I mean, like we said, full circle here. We've learned these stories that we've become, have learned to be true. We were like, I was raised with these stories of like, you don't question, right? So many of us were, but it is exciting to question. Having all this like, all these big things, if that's not what makes you happy and like immersing in different cultures and traveling the world and backpacking or doing whatever is what makes you happy, then do that. Like life is too short to just as we're talking about the funeral goals to not embrace what actually makes you happy and what you want your story to be. Ah. It's powerful. (laughs) Life is too short. It is. Well, I could talk to you forever, but thank you so much, Lisa, for coming on. It has been such a blast to dive in and just get to kind of chat with you about all these different things that really make a huge difference. 
Definitely. It was great to connect with you and I really enjoyed our chat. Of course. And um, for everybody, I will um, be putting all of Liesl's information in the episode notes so you can find her information for her book, her website, um, ways to connect with her. She's amazing. Definitely reach out. Um, And then also, I do want to say thank you guys so much for listening to the Abundance Alchemist podcast. As always, please um, like, review, let us know, subscribe, tell us what you want to hear. This is for you guys. This is a place that we can be safe and make these taboo subjects. I think that's not taboo. And when I strongly believe when one of us grows, we all grow. So um, that's what this whole podcast is here to do. Um, If you have any questions or concerns, reach out to me. And I look forward to talking to you guys next time on the Abundance Alchemist podcast. Thanks again, Liesl. Thank you. Thank you for hanging out with me on the Abundance Alchemist podcast. Don't forget to head over and grab your free self-love activation meditation at theabundancealchemist.com and hit subscribe here so you don't miss a thing. Until next time, sending you so much love.